This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Welcome to this new episode of Cafe Connect, where we bring you the latest research from the University of Aberdeen. My name is Barbara Gorgoni, and I'm part of the public engagement with research unit here at the university. In this series, we meet different researchers who will talk about their projects and its relevance to our life. If you have any questions, we would really love to hear from you. Please email peru at abdn.ac.uk. That's P-E-R-U at abdn.ac.uk. And we will put your questions and comments to our speakers. Keep in mind, however, that they won't be able to answer any personal or medical questions. So today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Karen Scott, Senior Research Fellow at the Rowett Institute at the University of Aberdeen, and Dr. Sumia Palihil, Head of Scottish Biologics Facility. We'll discuss the benefits and challenges that we face with antibiotics. So welcome both. So firstly, I will hand over to you to tell us a little bit more about your work and uh, interests. I'm Dr Karen Scott and I'm a gut microbiologist at the University of Aberdeen, as Barbara said. And a lot of my research involves investigating which bugs normally live in the healthy human gut and how we can boost their numbers. For those who don't know, there are more of these microbes known as the commensal microbiota in us than there are human cells in our body. These microbes perform many important functions to keep us healthy, including digesting bits of our food that we can't digest, which releases important nutrients and chemicals that circulate around our body. And they also protect us from pathogens. While I was investigating these microbes, I realized that some of them contained antimicrobial resistance genes. These genes were very similar to each other, regardless of whether they were found in microbes that came from humans or animals. And this got me really interested in finding out how these genes spread and where they came from. So nowadays, I combine these two research areas together, looking at the functions of different members of the commensal microbiota and also seeing how they contribute to the maintenance and spread of antimicrobial resistance genes. Thank you, Karen. Um, Sumia, over to you. Thanks, Barbara, and hello, everybody. My name is Salmia Palil, and I am uh, the head of Scottish Biologics Facility. This is uh, a research group, part of the University of Aberdeen, where we develop antibodies and new therapies for various human infections and diseases. So my research mainly focuses on developing innovative diagnostic tests and novel therapies for human diseases. These tests and drugs are based on a type of molecule which our body makes in fighting diseases. These molecules are called antibodies. In the Scottish Biologics Facility, we engineer these antibodies and make them super sensitive and highly potent so that these antibodies can be used to detect disease-causing agents and also can be used to remove these disease-causing agents or disease-causing cells from our body. There are two main disease areas where we are working at the moment in the Scottish Biologics Facility. One is developing ultra-sensitive diagnostic tests and therapies for dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. And the second area of interest is developing new therapies and tests for detecting and treating life-threatening bacterial and fungal infections. Thank you, Soumya. So, um, can I start by just asking uh, 
what's the difference between antibiotics and antimicrobials? Because it seems that um, you're using these terms interchangeably. That's very true, Barbara. I I am very guilty of using them interchangeably. So if you were being very specific about it, antimicrobials is a generic term that means any agent that's anti any microbe. So that is an all-encompassing term. Whereas, but often we use antibiotics as if we're talking about an antimicrobial. So they are used interchangeably and really what we should be is being much more specific. And we should really refer to antibacterials, which would be agents against bacteria, or antivirals, which would be agents against viruses, or antifungals, agents against fungi. So we're, we're really guilty of, over, of using antibiotics when we shouldn't. Because an antibiotic and an antimicrobial are very interchangeable because in, if you look at the word antibiotic, that's really against any life. And we don't really want to be against all life. We just want to be quite specific. So really, we should be specific. But I would have to say that in this podcast, I probably will use the terms interchangeably because I'm guilty of doing that. And also, if you if you go to the doctor to get a prescription, you're always prescribed an antibiotic. So medical doctors really use antibiotics to mean antibacterials often. I think they tend to be more specific if it's against fungus, fungi and viruses, but much less they use an antibiotic instead of an antibacterial. And most people are familiar with the term antibiotic as well. Okay, excellent. Thank you. That's very helpful. Can I just add to that, Barbara, as well? So there's different classes. So when we talk about the antibacterials particularly, there's four different classes of antibacterials. So you can get what we call broad-spectrum antibacterials that are active against many different types of bacteria and narrow-spectrum ones which have a much more targeted activity. And then again, they're split again into those that actually kill the bacteria, so they're bactericidal drugs, and those that just prevent the bacteria from reproducing, so they're bacteriostatic. And the differences in the types of antibacterial that are prescribed are actually quite important in terms of how, how effective they are or what the best type to prescribe is. Thank you. That's, uh, that's really helpful and interesting because we hear these terms over the news as well quite often. So that is very helpful. So why is overuse of antibiotics such a problem? Okay, so overuse is really a problem because what you do then is you, sometimes you're then having a constant exposure to the antimicrobial agent. And if you have that constant exposure... This makes a what we call a selective pressure on the bacteria. So the bacteria constantly experience the pressure to become resistant to that antimicrobial. And that can cause them to change. So they evolve to become resistant to that antimicrobial so that they can still grow and reproduce in the presence of that antimicrobial agent. So the more we use antimicrobial agents or antibiotics, then the, the more we have that problem of resistance evolving in different microbes against those antimicrobials, antimicrobial agents. And what we need to recognise as well is that when you, when you talk about exposure to antimicrobials, if I said to you, 
when are you exposed to an antimicrobial agent, your automatic response would be when I go to my GP and get a prescription. But that's not true. We're exposed to them in many more different ways than that. Because antimicrobials are not just used to treat humans, they're also used to treat livestock, and they're even used to spray onto crops, which is something I didn't actually really know until quite recently. And of course, as soon as you introduce them into the environment like that, then they start to contaminate the water. And then that water goes into the rivers, into the reservoirs, we drink it again. So we're exposed to antimicrobial agents, not just when we get a prescription from the doctor. And that low level of constant exposure is actually worse than a big, massive dose that you get when you take a prescription drug. And, and, I, and, and I think, uh, Karen, based on you know, your um, area of expertise, this exposure is not only for, you know, not only contributing to the, um, to the, the bad bacteria, but also to the... Uh, to the friendly bacteria uh, in our body, um, isn't it? So that's that's also something that is that we need to really think about, especially in situations where uh, you know un unnecessarily taking antibiotics for infections, um, which doesn't need antibiotics uh, uh, to clear off that infection. So uh, that would be quite uh, an interesting uh, point to hear a little bit more about, Karen. Yeah, sorry, Samir. Yeah, that, thank you for raising that. That's a great point because what happens when we take these any antibiotics? So, if, for example, you go to the doctor because you've got an ear infection, so clearly the doctor needs to clear that up. If it's caused by a bacterial infection, then they'll give you an antibacterial or an antibiotic. Um, but of course, if because they don't know exactly which bacteria is causing the infection. They want to give you one of those antibiotics I mentioned before that's a broad spectrum antibiotic. So they want to kill lots of different bacteria to be sure that they kill the bacteria that they need to kill that's causing the infection in your ear. But when, because you don't apply the antibiotic to your ear, you take it orally, so then it goes into your body through your digestive tract and it affects all the bacteria that are in there as well. And that's where we have this problem because those bacteria are not necessarily resistant. We hope they're not resistant to the antibiotics. So it has that effect and it kills off a lot of bacteria in our body that we don't necessarily want to kill. And some of it kills those bacteria that are doing beneficial things normally. And what happens then is that if you, if you take antibiotics too often, and some people do have to take antibiotics a lot, we can't avoid it all the time. You do have to take them to cure infections. But then you can, if you have that constant exposure in your commensal gut microbiota, they become resistant and they then form a reservoir of resistance. And those genes can then be transferred to pathogens that come in there. So the effect it has on the commensal microbiota, as well as having a very bad effect in killing it, if you want, they also have a less a less less obvious effect in increasing the sort of level of resistance that's there all the time that can then be transferred into other bacteria that come into that system. So yeah, there's the two factors are both very important. And it's really important then that we make sure that when we do go to the doctor to get, if say we have an infection, we go to the doctor. If it's a viral infection, we really 
do not need to get an antibacterial because it's not going to help at all in curing the viral infection and it can cause all this collateral damage. So we really want to be in, have enough knowledge that we don't try to persuade our doctors to give us antibiotics when we don't need them. Yeah, and, and also important that we complete the course of antibiotics, that particular course, because otherwise... Um, if you if you stop in between, then the bacteria is exposed to that antimicrobial or that or that antibiotic, but won't be completely cleared off. So that means there will be more chance of resistance development because of that uh, you know kind of short term exposure to uh, that particular antibiotic. So that's also important that we complete the course of it. Yeah, that's a great point to add on because. You end up being having repeated courses as well if you don't take all of the first one and exactly right the resistance just exacerbates. Okay, and and so what do we mean when we hear the global antimicrobial resistance problem? What that, does that actually mean? So Karen um, explained how bacteria or microorganisms in general how they are constantly developing changes in their genome uh, or they are constantly evolving. Uh, and what happens with this uh, when they are growing in a hostile uh, environment, i.e. in the presence of an antibiotic uh, or an antimicrobial agent, they will make changes to their genome, which will be then reflected uh, on, the, on the structure of the bacteria or the fungi, and they can withstand uh, that particular antibiotic or antimicrobial agent. So in simpler terms, what happens, this microorganism stop responding to the uh, to the drug that you are using to treat that infection. And this is, uh, this is quite uh, serious because then it takes much longer and harder to treat an infection and it causes severe illness in people and um, eventually death in certain patient population. Um, again, this resistance can spread from between microorganisms, it can spread between humans, animals and uh, you know from environment we can get these resistant uh, microbes into our system so uh, this is all very uh, you know very much interconnected and with the the way the world works nowadays which is constant movement of people and goods uh, this is not just confined to one geographical location you know this will spread all over the world and we have seen effects of that spread with the the ongoing pandemic sadly you know started in one part of the world but then very quickly spread the, uh, to the rest of the world so um, it is really um, although this this must uh, this might start in a in a small in a patient group uh, in a particular part this can easily become a global problem so that is why we call antimicrobial resistance a global problem um, and these bacteria and fungi develop resistance they start with developing resistance to uh, probably one drug with which it's it's uh, being treated with but then it can then develop resistance to multi multiple drugs and we call them multi-drug resistant bacteria or fungi uh, it doesn't stop there what happens is then they keep developing resistance and at one point some of these bacteria and fungi will become resistant to uh, the whole you know whole group of antimicrobial agents with which it you know you can treat uh, that bacteria or fungi uh, and these these organisms are called pan drug resistant uh, microbes uh, this is again a really serious problem because we have 
people who are immunocompromised. So when I say immunocompromised people or patients, these are patients with a low level of immune system. Um, they, this could be patients undergoing chemotherapy. So that uh, with the chemotherapy drugs, they, they have a lowered immune system. This could be people who have had organ transplant and on immunosuppressive drugs. So they don't have, their immune system don't have the ability to naturally defend invading uh, bacteria or fungi like healthy people have. Uh, so they are constantly dependent on antimicrobial drugs for even for the simplest of the infection. Um, so we call, the, call these antimicrobials prophylactic drugs, which means we are giving them before an infection starts because that's the only way we could, you know, these people could um, stop uh, an infection developing in their body. Uh, but this kind of long-term dependence on antibiotics again results in resistance development. So when these people are confronted with multi-drug resistant or pan-drug resistant microbes, bacteria or fungi, sadly this will develop into a very serious illness and um, in some cases uh, you know we, we see death of these of these people not from the from the from the initial disease like cancer or or kidney failure but unfortunately the death happens due to the uh, the presence of multi-drug resistant or pan fungal pan drug resistant bacteria or fungi in their system so it's it's a it's a real problem um, and it is important that we should avoid the development of this drug resistance in bacteria and fungi. Okay, and how have we traditionally then discovered antimicrobials? So it, ha it's, it's, it was pretty much um, uh, a lucky accident, uh, uh, the way antibiotics were initially, uh, initially discovered. But we have, we have used antibi uh, antibiotics throughout, the se throughout several centuries. So if you look back to ancient Egyptian civilization, for example, they have used uh, extracts from plant and molds to, to treat infections uh, in people. So uh, although they didn't really know this, this was proper antibiotics, people have been using this in, in various civilizations. Uh, but uh, the, the, the proper, uh, a proper antibiotic discovery is when Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin uh, which is an antibiotic which stopped the growth of uh, bacteria when he was conducting um, uh, microbiology experiments. So this penicillin is a compound which was, um, which was produced by a fungi called uh, penicillium notatum. Um, and uh, this compound produced by this fungus stops the growth of bacteria. So this is how initially uh, the, the first antibiotic was discovered. Um, and since then, several uh, new antibiotics were discovered from natural products. So when I say natural products, these are uh, the secondary compounds, metabolic compounds uh, made by bacteria or fungi, which will stop the growth of other bacteria or fungi. So because there is always this kind of uh, fight going on for resources when, when bacteria and fungi coexist. So initially, they, uh, the way of, make, uh, of discovering new antibiotics was uh, by a by a, a method called em empirical sc uh, screening. So you would screen for natural compounds, fermentation products, microbial extracts, and look for activity uh, where these compounds are stopping the growth 
of bacteria. So several antibiotic compounds were discovered that way. But this became quite um, a, a, you know, a long process and a tedious process. And what was happening was most, most of the new compounds discovered later on were replicates of original compounds. So, so there were no any new compounds being developed. Then scientists started moving away from that empirical way of developing antibiotics to more target-based way of uh, discovering antibiotics. So they would look at a particular uh, pathway like cell wall synthesis pathway or protein synthesis pathway. So these are quite essential for a bacteria or fungi to you know grow and survive in an environment. So they would look at those targets or enzymes which are crucial for the, the function of those uh, pathways and then started looking for compounds, chemical compounds which inhibit uh, these cellular pathways. Uh, so this, this type of, uh, uh, of finding new antibiotics is called target screening. Uh, and it, this was much more uh, easier way of finding new, uh, new antibiotics because the, you were moving away from this natural product screening, uh, which was long, you know, which was taking long time and tedious way. So the, these are the, the, the ways with which we so started with empirical screening and then moved on to target screening for uh, developing or discovering new antibiotics. So can I ask a question about that, Sumia, as well? Because clearly the, the original way, the empirical screening, where you're looking at existing microbes and trying to identify those that have activities against other microbes, because the reason, as you said, the reason that they have these activities against each other is because they live in this competitive environment. So that also meant that other bacteria, other microbes had resistance to those activities that were being designed to compete against them. So there is the resistance to antimicrobials almost coexisted with the production of antimicrobials in different microbes living in the same environment. And this was this has been part of the problem. So as soon as we identified and started to develop a new antimicrobial using that empirical method, there was already the resistance out there that could then be transferred into new bacteria. And that's why, if you look at the timelines of antimicrobial development using that empirical method and the recognition of resistance, they're like two, three, four years apart. So they're very quickly almost as soon as we started introducing a new antimicrobial agent in medicine, we were starting to see resistance coming through. So I just wonder if this new method, if you think that it's less likely for that resistance to come along so quickly because they're chemically synthesized molecules rather than existing molecules from the environment. Um, not really, no. The, the, so the, the target screening has its own limitations uh, and that's, uh, so we have so many drugs in the market which came out of tra target screening uh, and they are, again, there is resistance build up quite quickly with the target screening. A lot of this is because, uh, you know, we have to really consider uh, the type of targets that we are looking for because sometimes if the target is really something which is crucial for for the cell survival, uh, the cell, uh, the bacteria or, or fungi will start de developing mutations, which will, you know, to kind of circumvent that, so that they they can uh, live in that environment. Because it's it's quite natural. This evolution uh, is something which is it's a natural natural process, and it's something that you know we, you can't really put a stop to it. It is, um, it's so even with the target screening, um, you, it it certainly. 
reduced the time period required for developing or finding new new uh, inhibitors but uh, the problem of resistance never go, uh, went away because these were targeting certain cellular pathways or uh, like i said you know protein synthesis machinery so uh, if if that was not if if you inhibit one pathway or one one particular uh, part of that pathway there would there will be always uh, mutations and uh, development of resistance um, um, as as a result of of of, of targeting that pathway so um, it never uh, it never solved that problem uh, with the tradition uh, with the target screening uh, the other um, uh, there were also a lot of other uh, factors to consider because if you look at target screening you are you're looking at one particular enzyme for example in a bacteria so you need to if it if it needs to work um, in other species you need to have the same enzyme present in other bacterial species but at the same time you should not have that enzyme uh, as part of uh, a mammalian cell or a human cell otherwise what will happen is the same drug will have toxicity when you when when you use it as uh, when you use it to clear infection. So it's quite a lot of things to uh, to think about or consider when you uh, select a target. Um, but like you mentioned, this resistance development was something that we we couldn't um, you know remove even with the target screening approach. It's it's probably worth um, pointing out as well about the resistance development because you mentioned to me before when we spoke about this that when humans evolve, we evolve very, very slowly because our reproduction time is, what, 20? I don't know what the, 20 years or something. <laughs> and microbes are quite different, aren't they? Yeah, so again, that's that's a really good point. So if you think about, uh, you know, so the mutations are constantly happening uh, uh, in, in bacterial cells and uh, they reproduce um, every 20 minutes. So if you think about, uh, you know, these mutations are, can be quite rare. And let's say if it is one in million chance of one mutation happening, um, you know, as a gut microbiologist, Karen, how many cells are there, how many bacterial cells are in a human body, you know, it's, it's in trillions. So even with a one in million chance of a mutation happening, uh, this is, you know, if you, if you do the maths, it's a million mutation could be happening um, in, in our human body plus if you consider the uh, the replication time which is 20 minutes within a day you could have uh, billions of cells with that particular mutation uh, you know kind of getting reproduced and dominating um, a particular microbiological environment so it is that that uh, grow that fast rate of reproduction of bacteria is also a prob uh, it's also one of the the factors which contribute to antimicrobial resistance in such a you know vast speed okay so having outlined all these issues are there new ways then to develop new therapies for an effective and targeted treatment of infection yeah, there are. So I, uh, we did discuss about the limitations of target screening or traditional way of making or discovering new antibiotics. So scientists are now looking into uh, alternative therapies for infectious diseases. Uh, and much of these are specifically targeting the, the, the pathogenic bacteria or fungi uh, and not kind of disturbing uh, the rest of the good bacteria uh, within, uh, within the body. Um, so these type of drugs are called narrow-spectrum antimicrobials. Uh, one such example is bacteriophage. Uh, 
uh, or bacteriophage therapy. Uh, so these bacteriophage or in simple words phage are viruses that infect uh, bacteria and they are quite specific um, in the sense that they do not uh, infect human cells. So we have human um, invading virus but these phage, uh, phage viruses are the ones which are specific for bacterial cells. Um, so there are there is quite a lot of traction gaining in this uh, field. A lot of uh, companies coming up with various ways of uh, phage therapy and looking at specific pathogenic bacteria and treating them with these uh, these uh, phage. Another way is uh, making uh, monoclonal antibodies for treating uh, infectious diseases. Um, so I mentioned antibodies briefly uh, in my introduction. The antibodies are soldiers of our immune system and they are made by a particular type of immune cell called the B cell. Antibodies have uh, the ability to bind and uh, either neutralize or kill invading bacteria or fungus. Um, so what scientists have discovered um, over, over the years is you could make antibodies by immunizing animals with the, with the bacteria or fungi you are interested in. So this method has been uh, successfully used in treating um, wound infections during World War II. So uh, people used to immunize um, animals like sheep and horse with uh, diphtheria toxin and then generate serum um, which is uh, a, a, a component of blood which contains these um, anti-diphtherial antibodies and uh, these were used to treat soldiers with wound infections and this worked to some extent but the problem was the the kind of animal origin of these um, these antibodies because they were produced in sheep or horse. Uh, nowadays, uh, with the advancements in molecular biology and biotechnology, uh, we can make fully human monoclonal, an monoclonal antibodies and uh, this type of treatments have been quite successfully used in uh, treating cancer and autoimmune disorders. So monoclonal antibodies are highly promising therapeutic uh, modalities for treating uh, infectious diseases. We have shown it in a, di in a slightly different way um, you know, in the last century, uh, but now there are more ways of developing uh, antibodies and making them much more potent for treating uh, these infections. And so what is stopping these new antimicrobials being used? Um, so this is this is a complex pro problem, Barbara. Um, it's, it's certainly not science or uh, innovation. Uh, this, uh, you know, as you can imagine, um, drug discovery takes, um, you know, it, it takes a huge effort in terms of funding uh, and and it takes several years to, to develop, discover a drug and uh, test it uh, through various clinical stages and get it into the market. So, um, if you if you want to know uh, in terms of cost, uh, a company needs to invest something around uh, the region of 1.5 billion US dollars to develop a drug. Okay, so that's a huge undertaking, um, and with with the the resistance problem that we discussed, um, and how Karen was mentioning, you know, the, the speed at which these uh, microbes are developing resistance to existing antibiotics, uh, there is much, uh, you know, much less chance of uh, recouping the investment back. So this kind of put off big pharma's interest in um, developing new antimicrobials. Uh, the other issue is um, 
again, I don't know whether you have heard about uh, a terminology called antibiotic stewardship. So what is happening is any of these new high-end antibiotics that's been developed um, will be kept in reserve as a last resort, a drug of last resort. So it won't be straight away used in any infection. Uh, it will be only used in multi-drug resistant or pan-drug resistant situations. So what is happening is companies spend so much money uh, developing these drugs, but then that's not getting used. So that means they are not getting any revenue back. So that kind of uh, stopped the development of new antimicrobials because, and it's purely because of uh, lack of funding. Um, so yeah, that's that's something that we need to address or or you know government organizations need to address and so are there any of these uh, closest to marketing then so there are around 40 to 50 new drugs in clinical development but although that seems a lot that's nowhere near uh, enough to you know keep up with the 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 speed in which antimicrobial resistance is developing so we really need to have uh, more uh, effort and more funding in this region to uh, in this area in this area um, to develop new antimicrobial drugs um, currently uh, there's only a very small handful number of pharma companies are interested in developing new antimicrobials they've all exited from this space and they're more uh, concentrating in uh, uh, you know much more uh, economically beneficial disease areas, if you want to put it that way, uh, like cancer and, uh, you know, autoimmune disorders, which are much more chronic. So uh, you will be, you know, dependent or you'll be using that drug for a longer time. Uh, you know, you can imagine an, a bacterial infection or a fungal infection is for a short period of time. So, uh, you know, by the time that, uh, so you, you would be using it for a, a shorter period. So the returns are quite low. Uh, there are quite a lot of uh, innovation and scientific discoveries happening in small and uh, medium biotech companies. Uh, but clearly this is not something, you know, early stage drug development is one thing, but to actually take a drug and take it through various stages of clinical trials is much more expensive. And at this stage, you need to have a big pharma taking on this drug and uh, developing it through the, the trial stages and marketing it. Um, so. Uh, so there we have a, a, a real problem, a, a real gap that we need to fix. Some of these um, um, gaps are being fixed by, um, you know, by the government organizations and, and philanthropic organizations coming into the picture, uh, like the Wellcome um, Trust and uh, Gates Foundation. So they are all, um, uh, you know, funding the early stage discovery, uh, but we really need uh, much more, uh, you know, new models of uh, initiatives from the government to to attract more pharma companies back into the space and uh, you know help with the uh, the later stages of drug discovery or drug development which is the most expensive uh, expensive stage okay so i really need to ask at this point is it all doom and gloom then <laughs> I, i'm i'm sorry if if you know we we kind of painted that picture uh, to you that it is it is uh, it is a serious uh, issue this is something uh, you know so this uh, it's something that we all should be uh, looking at much more seriously uh, and uh, start to come up with solutions to it um, 
there are, uh, like I mentioned, there are government organizations coming up with uh, different economical models uh, uh, to, uh, to fund antimicrobial drug discovery. So there's um, a really uh, a latest one um, announced by the UK government uh, was a, a subscription type payment. So usually what happens is, uh, you know, the, the companies get paid based on the volume of sales, how much antibiotics uh, has been used, and then they get uh, paid for, the, for that. But what uh, the UK government is um, um, kind of proposing or introducing is a subscription type payment where there will be upfront payment for uh, companies developing drugs which which can be uh, of use in the NHS. So that is a really good initiative and I'm sure that will encourage a lot more of pharma companies to come back uh, into the space and develop new, uh, new drugs. Um, it's mainly in the in the in the kind of clinical trial uh, stages uh, we need pharma um, uh, pharma input um, um, in this space. Uh, also, it's quite encouraging to see um, you know government uh, organizations, public sector, um, the academic groups, and companies all coming together, forming con uh, consortiums for the early stage development uh, of, of of new therapies, novel therapies like the ones that I mentioned previously, like the, the phage therapy or uh, antibody therapy, uh, which is really, uh, you know, exciting to see new science coming out. The science uh, here is very strong. Uh, again, uh, you know, the emphasis is all on uh, new ways of funding uh, this expensive, uh, you know, drug discovery uh, pathway so that we can get more anti antimicrobials in the market, uh, which can withstand this resistance uh, development problem. I think that as well, I agree with Sumia, it's not all doom and gloom. I think we've recognised that the problem was out there. And I think that was a big step, was recognising the problem. And there's a huge, there's a global action plan that was came out in 2015 and is updated on an annual basis. And all countries in the world are joining together to try to get around this problem. And the, the point, the important point to make is that any new drugs that come out will be stewarded in a much better way than we have in the past. So although we can't get past the, we, we can't take back the resistance that's already out there, we can prevent that same resistance arising to such an extent with the new drugs that are being developed because we can really use them when we need to use them and not use them in, as indiscriminately as they've been used in the past. So I think recognising all of that's been really important and then there's also the um, World Antimicrobial Awareness Week that runs every year and that brings like events out to schools and educates people right from a very young age right through their lives you'll see things when you go to your GP surgery there's things about don't ask for antibiotics unless you really need them and everything so I think public awareness of the issue is going to be a huge step forward to getting around this problem as well so the the new inventions that Sumi has mentioned combined with the increased awareness of the issue I think together mean that we will we will survive and it's not going to be the huge problem that it could have been. I mean, the, the if we had sat back and done nothing, we would have been in the situation where we were no longer able to treat infectious diseases because they were resistant to everything we could throw at them. And that was a terrible problem that we were facing, but I think that we are not facing that anymore. So, yeah, it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> Excellent. And I think on this positive note, we should end. And of course, 
um, activities like this podcast, having researchers like yourselves coming on and talking about the issue um, also helps towards the education and increased understanding, um, you know, in, for everyone. So I'd like to thank you both uh, uh, very much, Karen and Sumia, for a fascinating insight into this very complex issue. And uh, um, so to our audience, thank you very much for listening. And remember that if you have any questions for our speakers, please email peru at abdn.ac.uk. That's p-e-r-u at abdn.ac.uk. And keep your ears open for our next Cafe Connect podcast. Goodbye. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.